The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 18th, 2023. Dozens of State Department employees have signed at least three internal dissent memos expressing serious disagreements with the Biden administration's approach to the war in Gaza. This week, more than 500 political appointees and staff members from across 40 government agencies sent a letter to President Joe Biden protesting his support of Israel in the war. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from September 7th, 2019, in which Scott R. Anderson sat down with Colm Lynch, Robbie Gramer, and Margaret Taylor to discuss the resignations of a number of career State Department officials due to alleged complaints and disagreements with Trump administration officials and policies and allegations of political manipulation and abusive practices inside the department's International Organization Bureau. Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Law Affair Podcast for September 7th, 2019. This summer has been a tumultuous one inside the U.S. State Department. Earlier this month, the Department's Office of the Inspector General handed down a scathing report alleging political manipulation and abusive practices inside the Department's Internal Organization Bureau, one of only a series of similar allegations. At the same time, a number of career State Department officials ranging from assistant secretaries to the rank and file have resigned due to alleged complaints and disagreements with Trump administration officials and policies. To help me dig into these developments and consider what they might mean for the State Department's present and future, I was joined by Colm Lynch and Robbie Gramer, two reporters from Foreign Policy Magazine, as well as Lawfare Senior Editor Brookings Institution Fellow Margaret Taylor, who is a fellow alumnus of the State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor and former Democratic Counsel for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 450, Turnover and Turmoil Inside the State Department. Colm and Robbie, you guys really are credited in the OIG report as breaking the story in the media. Give us a background about what exactly you all were reporting on and what the OIG report kind of pulled out about this incident. The way that this story emerged is that there was a, uh, a an American citizen who worked for the United Nations who was sort of wondering whether they should pay a visit to the um, Bureau of International Organizations, which is the State Department department that oversees the UN, World Health Organization, and other organizations. And generally, when there's new leadership that comes in, and they had just appointed, this is sort of in the in around April of 2017, the Assistant Secretary of State, Kevin Moley, had just come in 
and he had appointed a senior advisor named Maurice Dahl. So um, this American citizen who worked for a U.N. Um, agency was planning on paying a courtesy visit just to sort of do the introductions. And then before going to the meeting was sort of warned by a number of staffers inside International Organizations Bureau to stay away, that they were concerned that they were trying to collect as much information they could about American citizens with a sort of goal of trying to push Americans who were not considered politically uh, loyal to the Trump administration, even out of these kind of UN jobs, which would generally been sort of career jobs. And so they were said, you know, don't even let them see you or know who you are, just keep your head down and stay away. And so that sort of started, uh, I mean, Robbie and I started asking around other people in IO and other sources we have in the State Department, and we started to hear kind of one story after another of how, you know, uh, Kevin Moley and Mari Stull had been uh, collecting information on, on individuals, their political background, affiliation, looking through clearance papers from the previous administration to see who was responsible for signing off on clearances for certain policies that were no longer popular. And these were, of course, all career civil service and foreign service officers who would have to, you know, sign on and clear policies, whether they approved of them or not. But these were seen as red flags for Moli and Stoll. And so if you were associated with an issue like, you know, that is uh, that resonates politically with this administration, whether it had to do with sexual reproductive health, whether it had to do with the Palestinians, with immigration, then you were uh, a target. And so uh, very quickly after they came in, um, there was enormous tension between the staff and and those two leaders, and people started, you know, feeling that they had to sort of run for cover, move to other administrations where there was sort of less kind of oppressive, you know, political sort of overlordship over their activities. And so we, you know, began to sort of gradually document this and to sort of, you know, we and then you know Congress picked up on this, and then the IG. And the special counsel started looking into it. So that's kind of how it got started. Robbie, tell us a little bit about Moley and Stoll. Where did they come from? How did they end up in these positions in the I.O. Bureau? Well, uh, Kevin Moley has had experience um, during the Bush administration, I believe. And both he and Stoll came in in this wave, this early wave of appointees coming into the State Department um, in the early earlier days of the Trump administration. And I think it's important for context here that the first year uh, or two years of the Trump administration were really difficult for the State Department. Of course, that was during Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's tenure, which was marked by what many critics saw as mismanagement of the department, a Secretary of State who was not very engaged with the rank and file of of the State Department, tried to undergo this really costly and ineffective uh, redesign, did a hiring freeze. Um, and of course, on top of all of this, is there's a president who seems to exude a sort of disdain for the professional diplomatic corps. And so when they came in um, and started acting the way they did, according to this OIG report um, and our reporting, um, in a way it really reflected or captured the zeitgeist of how, you know, Trump appointees or the Trump era seems to treat professional diplomats, which is looking on them with disdain, um, seeing them as, you know, the famous quote goes as as deep state 
And after they came in and we started reporting this out, I mean, the stories started snowballing. We we first broke this news, I think, about 14 or 15 months ago. And since then, we've, we've heard a steady drumbeat of complaints, of warnings, uh, sounding alarm bells of what was going on within this bureau. Um, and of course, that sparked uh, multiple congressional probes, as well as this investigation by the Office of Inspector General and also the Office of Special Counsel um, in the federal government, which is not to be confused with uh, Mueller's special counsel, which is a separate entity. So a big part of the story is this uh, agenda setting, this effort to manipulate the appointment of American citizens and other sort of policy issues from the I.O. Bureau in a direction that uh, has this kind of political color to it. But there's also some more basic allegations from within the I.O. Bureau about both staffing issues, kind of treatment of staff by Stoll and Molly's response to that, the way they handled the professional diplomats and civil servants within the I.O. Bureau. Then there's also this separate issue of a conflict of interest allegation regarding Stoll. Can you guys elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, before uh, taking on the job, she had been a lobbyist for the food industry, and she had spent some time working in international organizations, including the FAO, uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization. And she left the FAO in sort of the midst of some dispute that she had. It's not clear exactly what that was, but she had sort of filed a grievance against FAO and had sought support from a, an official in the State Department to back her. This is before she came into government and I think was dissatisfied with the kind of response that she received. And and once she came into government, um, the IG report indicates that, that she retaliated against this State Department official and that she also reached out to others to try to help her in, um, you know, to seek legal advice and other uh, sort of elements of support for her case against F FAO. And so she was denied that support because, you know, it was considered improper. And, and the IG report found that she, you know, retaliated against these individuals, made it difficult for them. I mean, there was one case where uh, one official who, um, you know, was responsible for some special expertise, she had special expertise within the State Department, and that when there were international conferences on it, she was sort of pulled out at the last minute and, you know, was basically, you know, made her role kind of irrelevant because she couldn't carry out the work that she was trained to do. So that that was sort of the basis was that, that she kind of improperly used her position to advance her own cause in the case. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the OIG report, which is over 30 pages, you know, Office of Inspector General reports are sometimes very dry and anodyne. But this is a real doozy of a of an OIG report. I mean, it details allegations of both Moley and Stoll, um, you know, berating staff, punishing staff based on their political beliefs, you know, accusing staff of being traitors, of being deep state to their face, um, causing staff to cry, um, even, you know, carrying out retaliations that impacted uh, people's careers based off of, you know, not carrying out assignments or not believing information about UN funding, for example, um, when it was presented to them that uh, didn't appear to fit into their preconceived views of, of how the UN works and how this administration views the, the UN and other international organizations. Um, so the report itself is a real, really damning indictment on one bureau's management here. Um, and I think it's important to note that 
Moley himself, at the end of the OIG report, issued a pretty lengthy rebuttal to a lot of the allegations against him, either denying a lot or saying he wasn't aware of other things. Um, and Stoll herself also issued a statement to us when we first reported the story a couple weeks back um, that I wanted to highlight, where she said that the report, quote, focuses on false and silly allegations by career bureaucrats who hate Trump. She said the report is politically motivated payback for my efforts to implement President Trump's agenda over the resistance of deep state bureaucrats who oppose his reform agenda. She also said she was never given an opportunity to interview with the OIG during her tenure with the administration and that the report contains, quote, false misleading information. Um, now, the OIG office said that they uh, repeatedly tried to interview Stoll, but um, but were unable to do so. So I just wanted to add that context as well. And just to just a foot stomp a little bit on what Robbie said, as Scott, you know, I spent 10 years in the State Department as a career attorney and then five and a half years on Capitol Hill Senate Foreign Relations Committee doing oversight. I've met Steve Linick. I've talked to him in a professional capacity. Steve is, Linick, the OIG. Right. Steve Linick, he yeah. is the inspector general for the State Department. He is not someone who is prone to hyperbole at all. He is a sort of, you know, straight arrow, you know, by the book kind of guy. And having read a bunch of IG reports over the years, and I've read a bunch, the way this one reads is like Steve Linick's hair is on fire. I mean, it is just so it comes through to me as someone who's read so many reports that like they were very, very sure about everything that they put in this report and the language they used, again, with State Department sort of diplomatic speak is is to me like on fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as a reporter, what I found a little disappointing was that the way that he characterized the acts, that they're based on sort of unidentified, you know, I spoke to a number of IO officials and they said this and I had this general sense. They went through massive amounts of emails. And and what I was really hoping to see was sort of more kind of reflection of primary documents. What exactly did Mari Stell say? What did they have like in her own words? And that's what I was hoping to come. I mean, I'm not, you know, an expert on these IG reports, but that, as I found as a reporter, I mean, I was really looking, there were certain conversations, exchanges that we had sort of picked up on. And I was curious to see those, you know, I was curious to see those reflected in the report. And generally, the gist of it was was all kind of reinforced. But a lot of the specifics were kind of, you know, I would have liked to have seen more. I would have liked to see more from the emails and that sort of thing. But otherwise, it was, a, you know, it was generally a pretty powerful report. Yeah, I think uh, that makes sense. You know, uh, my, myself also as a former State Department official who spent time with these. I agree with Margaret's uh, point about the tone. A lot of these OIG reports tend to be a little more conclusory uh, as opposed to documenting, you know, original sources and te- right. said they focus on drawing conclusions and kind of conducting the analysis from the perspective of the independent inspector general. Um, Margaret, let me go back to you on your this point, because as you mentioned, you obviously were in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and were there when uh, Assistant Secretary Moley was put up for confirmation. You know, how did he stand out in this crowd? Were there warning signs about this sort of behavior? And how did the, you know, committee in general who's responsible in part for vetting and looking at these officials, kind of think about these maybe staffing and personnel issues. How do you look in a background or look into uh, somebody's professional history to try and determine whether there's a risk of this sort of thing? So uh, you're right. I was there when 
Kevin Mulley came through the process. It was like a very chaotic time, I would say, back in the very beginning of the Trump administration. For all sorts of reasons, it's it's typically actually chaotic when an administration comes in because there's, you know, there's a lot of nominations happening. There are a lot of questions. Everybody's sort of figuring out what their roles are and how they're going to play things. Honestly, looking back on on this particular one, nothing really stands out because actually what I remember about it was that he was one of the nominees that actually had relevant experience in the area where he was nominated for, which was not true for many of the people that were being nominated. And he had no significant red flags in his file in terms of like any criminal activity or anything like that, which, again, some people did. You know, one of the things that the committee, we on the committee who are doing this vetting for the committee, we asked ourselves, you know, based on what we see in the file or, you know, our conversation with the person, other relevant public information, you know, is this someone who is going to have problems on the management front? Are, are we going to see an IG report on this person's management practices in a year. That is literally something that we ask ourselves when we're looking at these files. And it's particularly for ambassadors, like far-flung ambassadors going to random parts of the world and like no eyes really on them. Like, are are we going to hear about horrible things that they're doing to employees? So, you know, I just... I just have to say, you know, this was was one of the people, there were a lot of things, I was on the Democratic side, a lot of things we didn't agree with necessarily about his views, but that's not the metric you use. Um, And on the metrics that we used, you know, Kevin Mulley didn't raise red flags. And so, you know, I've, I've written about this a little bit in connection with various problematic Trump officials who have sort of turned out to be doing bad things. And it's, you know, it is hard to really catch everything when you're going through the vetting process, um, particularly from the sort of Capitol Hill side when, you know, you're sort of in, I wouldn't say a confrontational relationship with the administration, but, you know, you're really trying to find out the real story. Um, And there's only a certain number of tools that we, you know, at the staff level sort of really have to do that. So, I mean, you know, I guess what I would say the bottom line is like this, this seemed like a person who actually was qualified and wasn't going to present huge problems. And that turned out just not to be true. What we found interesting was that, uh, you know, the sources that we spoke to in state, I mean, one thing that kept coming across in our discussions was that Moley, you know, who was confirmed uh, assistant secretary of state was not the dominant player that, that stole in a way was directing a lot of the, the actions and decisions of the, the, the department and that Moley was sort of an enabler and a facilitator. And what, what, one of the things we found kind of interesting is that, I mean, part of this was sort of, I think, a strategy by the Domestic Policy Council in the White House and Stephen Miller, which is to sort of see the various State Department, USAID, Treasury departments with political allies who would you know, promote and advance the president's agenda on a lot of domestic policy issues. And, you know, Mari Stahl sort of fell into that category. And she was seen as someone by the other staff as someone who really had, you know, derived enormous power from her connections to the White House. And that, you know, that enabled her to, in a sense, you know, promote, and even though she wasn't confirmed, she was a special advisor, but to, to sort of dominate the, the course of the, the department's policies in, in a way that almost seems difficult to, to, to imagine from the, from the outside. Yeah, and, and just to put a finer point on what, what Colm said, I mean, 
obviously every administration stacks, uh, you know, their bureaus and departments with with people who align with them politically. That's how our system works. Um, I think what was different here is that um, a lot of these people who were seen as more politically powerful, more well connected with this uh, inner circle of White House advisors were not Senate-confirmed positions. They fell below the threshold of congressional oversight here. They were the senior advisors in this and that bureau or, you know, an advisor here in USAID or elsewhere. Um, And so that was just, I think, a unique dynamic that we hadn't tracked before this. So Maurice Stoll is no longer with the State Department at this point. It hasn't been for, for a little bit now. Um, but, of course, Assistant Secretary Moley still is in place. Where does this leave Secretary Pompeo and the State Department? What sorts of actions have they signaled they are pursuing or might they pursue in response to the OIG report? Uh, Colm and Robbie. So, so far, uh, Kevin Moley has stayed in his position, which has angered some people at the State Department and also some uh, some members of the oversight committees on the Hill that I've spoken to as part of our reporting. Right now, there's no news on whether he'll keep his job or not keep his job. Um, we do understand that senior State Department officials are addressing the I.O. Bureau about that in a town hall um, at least this week to help try and right the ship, you know, repair the damage that's been done. But this does present a lot of questions, I think, for Secretary Pompeo and his leadership. Pompeo came in after Tillerson was very ungraciously fired from his job via tweet last March, and he famously vowed to restore the State Department swagger. That's what he calls it, you know, after over a year of, you know, dozens of empty senior posts, of hiring freeze, of uh, Secretary of State that didn't seem connected either with rank-and-file diplomats or with the White House itself, Pompeo came in and said, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna boost morale. Um, I'm going to bring back some good management. Um, and to his credit, from what we understand from diplomats we've talked to, he has taken a lot of steps to, you know, lift a hiring freeze, empower career foreign service officers, as well as political appointees, um, and take other steps to help with the management. But against this backdrop, there's still a president who diplomats see as disdainful toward their profession towards career diplomats. And also there's cases um, such as Kevin Moley, such as Mari Stoll and others where it, it seems the the his department's employees were not being treated well. And the, the department so far has taken a sort of scattershot, disparate approach to how they handle the mistreatment of employees, whereas uh, Moley might be weathering the storm, but others have, have been summarily kicked out or, or quietly let go. Well, you mentioned those others, and I, let's shift focus to that for a moment, um, because, of course, if this were an isolated case, that would be concerning. But, you know, there may just be some bad apples in the bunch. But there is a bit of perhaps a trend here or nothing else over the course of just this past summer. We've seen a number of similar cases pop up. Um, one I want to talk about first is Sean Lawler, who until earlier this summer was the chief of protocol for the State Department. And, Margaret, you wrote a piece for Lawfare, I think tellingly entitled, I vetted the State Department with Guy, uh, about <laughs> Mr. Lawler uh, and some of the, frankly, pretty bizarre allegations against him. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah. So Sean Lawler was nominated and confirmed to be the chief of protocol, which is an advice and consent position, uh, which typically carries the rank of ambassador. Uh, just so our listeners know, uh, what the chief of protocol does, it's it's actually quite important at the State Department. Uh, in diplomacy, protocol is 
is king. And when you have a diplomatic meeting, you want all of the you know people there, the heads of state, et cetera, whoever they are, all sitting in the right positions that reflect their rank. Um, and if you sort of mess that up, you can offend people. So, And there's all sorts of protocol issues like that that the chief of protocol handles, both within the department and when the secretary of state travels, when the president travels. So it's an important job. It's, it's, it's not a nothing thing. So Sean Lawler, you know, it became clear earlier this summer in June that there were allegations that he was engaging in sort of abusive management type activities, um, the most significant of which was actually carrying a whip around the office. And people in that office, uh, the Office of the Chief of Protocol, were allegedly perceiving that as threatening, which is, you know, I think uh, probably any of us might perceive that as threatening if our boss was walking around with a whip. An IG investigation was opened with respect to him, and he ended up resigning, like he ended up just leaving. So the problem resolved itself in a different way. But, you know, the fact that it sort of went on for as long as it did, and it as bad as it was that the type of activity was going on, I mean, I, I do think, you know, it's, it's, is showing a pattern of problems with management. And, you know, I just I just would also say, you know, it's not clear to me what – if the department is sort of learning its lesson, even with respect to this position, because there was someone appointed to be the chief of protocol, I think on August 12th, like appointed to the position. But, you know, that is traditionally an advice and consent position that is approved by the Senate. Um, and I'm hearing that that person who's been appointed to that position, the administration is going to be or is thinking of nominating her for that position. And that's just something you don't do because it shows a lack of respect for the Senate's advice consent role. When you appoint someone to a position, you have them performing the duties of the position, and then you nominate them. Like, what if that person's not confirmed? What if in the Senate's wisdom, they're like, no, the person and the person's already in the job. So you know, I think it's it's just not it's not a good sign that this isn't being handled well, even now, even after uh, this other person left under under a cloud. It's it's not being handled well going forward either. I mean, the the other person I wanted to bring up is uh, Kyron Skinner, who is the head of policy planning in the department, who replaced. Brian Hook, who is now a, a top advisor on Iran for Secretary Pompeo, and Kyron Skinner, um, I believe earlier this month, was very quickly and summarily fired, escorted from the building after allegations emerged that she also was berating employees um, and acting abusive toward her employees in the policy planning office. Kyron Skinner is was the uh, senior most ranking African-American woman in the department at the time. And obviously, policy planning holds this uh, important uh, symbolic role in the State Department as sort of the State Department's internal think tank as the the policy guru uh, that has a direct line to the secretary. So that was another stark, very publicly accounted for firing of a senior State Department official here. And so this, this does all fit into the pattern. I think the way that she was let go, there there's still some questions that remain to be answered on this because she, as I understand it, maybe others have more information, she was let go very quickly, was not given a lot of time to address the accusations against her, um, and there was not a lot of process through this. Um, now, I've heard theories that 
after this OIG report on the International Organizations Bureau, after some other bad press, they wanted to root out the problem quickly, efficiently, and quietly. But it does raise questions as to why if uh, you know, an assistant secretary of state with a 30 to 40 page OIG report with charges leveled against him. Why is he still in office if the policy planning chief who was, you know, the senior ranking person um, in an administration that is not very well known for prioritizing diversity, um, why she was let go so quickly and without much of a uh, much of a review process there? Yeah, Absolutely. And the, the third name I, I think I wanted to mention and bring up here is one we've heard, I think, in recent media reports, uh, is Charles Faulkner, somebody who at various points was kind of a mid-level official in the Legislative Affairs Bureau at the State Department, and at various points may have been the act, was he was acting assistant secretary in that capacity, but who played a role, despite being a former Raytheon lobbyist, played a role in some arms sales ranted in Yemen, both endorsing a fairly controversial assertion that Secretary Pompeo made in the fall that allowed certain arms sales to continue and other sorts of support to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen's efforts uh, to continue. Then a, a, a certification that only the Legislative Affairs Bureau endorsed, that all the other bureaus advising the Secretary urged him not to do because they felt the lack of credibility, and then also moving into uh, the more recent assertion of a state of national emergency that allowed them to move forward with various arms sales despite objections by people in Congress. Margaret, I want to go to you first on this one about this Mr. Faulkner. You know, he's a little bit of a different case here where it is not somebody being alleged of abusing personnel or of, you know, kind of abusing necessarily the kind of conventional management responsibilities, but has an apparent, at least alleged, conflict of interest in the eyes of some people on the Hill who are investigating this, and in regards to his former employer Raytheon and the role he's playing here. How does the Senate, when it's looking at officials, think about these conflict of interest things, or when it's doing its oversight role, as Faulkner wasn't confirmed, I don't believe, by the Senate? And, you know, how does that play into this sort of discussion around this individual, the role he may have played in this decision-making? So, yeah, you're right. Charles Faulkner, his role was not in advice and consent Senate confirmed position, um, but he was in the Office of Legislative Affairs. So there is a lot of interaction. He's, you know, really the uh, he was one of the main interlocutors, actually, uh, at the staff level for Capitol Hill. You know, I think on this one, it's kind of too early to know. Um, I, I haven't really been able to get a lot of sort of solid facts on why exactly he left or what what the dynamics were exactly. Um, I mean, certainly the question of, you know, advising on an issue where you had previously been lobbying for a client that stands to benefit from uh, a particular transaction is is problematic. But I think like what we on the outside here don't don't really know is sort of what what the facts exactly are. You know, what what were the circumstances of him having Raytheon as a client? So I, I just kind of feel like it's it's a little early to to tell. And I'm not sure that there is an IG investigation going on. I know there were some calls for that. So we're just going to have to kind of, I think, wait and see a little bit uh, how this plays out factually before. And that's how I think, you know, the the oversight committees will want information. There are actually like a couple of hearings even where, you know, Charles Faulkner came up and, you know, sort of his role in that all came up in the hearings on Capitol Hill. So, you know, it will be pursued, I think, um, in a kind of quiet way, just to make sure that people understand what the facts were before, you know, there's some sort of action or proclamation on it. And I think the facts are just unclear right now. Yeah. And it's also 
I mean, it's it's hard to report out or or pin down, but um, it's also important to remember that this administration is very backstabby, for lack of a better term. Um, I mean, if people, this administration has with a much higher frequency had people leave under a cloud, under, you know, some very negative headline that offers up lurid details about what's going on. Um, obviously, that has been a fixture at in the Trump White House. But I think that also bleeds over into the State Department. So there's always a lot of rumors flying around about when and how and under what circumstances senior appointees at the State Department are leaving. Um, and that's, you know, it's Washington, it's a gossipy town that, that's always there. But I think particularly it's pointed in this administration. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, absolutely. So we have seen this, this kind of series of cases where uh, there have been allegations against individuals in the State Department of where they have been resigned or they have either where they've been removed in some cases because of credible allegations in some cases perhaps there's a bit of scapegoatism in the case of uh Cosmo Skinner and Mr. Faulkner uh, that might be in play here as well but in addition to that we've seen another sort of phenomenon that's been particularly prominent over this past summer which is the resignation of a number of officials who of whom there is no particular complaint um but at a fairly senior level after in some cases relatively short durations in office. So we have Kimberly Breyer, who, of course, is the Assistant Secretary of Western Hemisphere Affairs, uh, who resigned recently in the past few weeks from that position, or at least stayed an intent to resign. I don't know if she's actually formally departed yet. Uh, Wes Mitchell from European Affairs, Assistant Secretary there as well, uh, who left. And Jennifer Newstead from the Office of the Legal Advisor, who left after a little over a year on the job to take a position as a general counsel at Facebook. And, you know, this is kind of a tricky position in part for the administration because they've been under a lot of criticism about vacancies, particularly at that important assistant secretary level, uh, which is a fairly senior position that's important for coordinating bureaus at the State Department uh, and had just gotten through confirmation for Near Eastern Affairs and East Asian and Pacific Affairs oh, just this past summer, still leaving them with a lot of vacancies or a lot of acting officials at this assistant secretary level. Can you give us a little insight, Colin and Robbie, about What's behind this trend, these vacancies at the assistant secretary level, why these people might be leaving? Yeah, I mean, I don't I, I don't know all of the cases. I think some people are leaving for different reasons. But I think one interesting sort of thread that ties some of the departures together may have to do with the election atmosphere. I mean, the this the administration, the president has gone back to the kind of rhetoric that he was using in the presidential campaign 
uh, very nativist, very uh, anti-immigrant. I think the tone has darkened. And I think, you know, maybe not in the case of all these individuals, but certainly Breyer, who is, I think, you know, a stalwart conservative, clashed with some of the hard, the hardest liners in the White House, particularly Stephen Miller, over how far and how, you know, supportive she was of the president's immigration policy. It's interesting because I wrote a story on Kim Breyer having quashed an effort by the department to put out a public statement criticizing Guatemala for cracking down on uh, access to their uh, wartime war crimes archives. And uh, that was viewed as as a signal that that even the State Department was going to take a harder line on uh, some of these issues. And the reason she did it, I mean, I don't know why she did it, but these a lot of the speculation that she didn't want to interrupt the negotiation between the administration and Guatemala over the uh, safe third country agreement, um, which would require, you know, political asylum seekers to, you know, seek asylum in country in Guatemala if they wanted to come to the United States. So if they would turn down, they would be stuck in Guatemala. So she was seen as, as quite hardline within her department, within the State Department more generally, but clearly not tough enough and not subservient enough to the to the White House line on on, on immigration. Um, they have some other cases with individuals at a lower level, you know, uh, Chuck Park, Bethany Milton. And I think, you know, they just found it sort of untenable to defend the administration as, you know, the the calls for, you know, sending her sending them back, you know, to the Democratic congressional uh, figures, other very harsh, you know, rhetoric about migration, and that, you know, it just became dip- more and more difficult as the tone darkened. I mean, I think for the assistant secretary level, these resignations are uh, pretty significant internally because you know the the assistant secretaries are the the battlefield commander equivalent of of diplomats here, and so the, without them, with um, obviously their positions are filled by lower ranking officials and acting positions, but um, even acting positions can't really carry the same sort of diplomatic heft that a fully Senate-confirmed, presidentially-nominated assistant secretary can have. In both Breyer and and Mitchell's case, uh, you know, one thing I heard repeatedly is I I believe both of them, you know, eventually said either in their resignation letter or it came out in reporting that they wanted to spend more time with their families, which, of course, in Washington is code word for, oh, my gosh, something more, you know, sinister is going on. Um, But I do think there was an element of that. These are incredibly taxing jobs. Um, You know, some of these assistant secretaries have families. um, And there is a natural churn, you know, after a few years in administration of assistant secretaries leaving. Um, And so it's sometimes people, particularly in this administration, overread into uh, resignations here. Um, But even after having said that, I, I think it is important to bring up that there are still a lot of important vacancies at the State Department. Pompeo, of course, vowed to to fill all these vacancies um, and cooperate more with the Senate or press the Senate more to do that, um, whether it's in a more cooperative or competitive uh, tone. But uh, one thing I I just like to point out is that the that Colin mentioned this, but there were some working level career foreign service officers at the lower and mid level who resigned in in public ways with Washington Post or New York Times op-eds and I think we are still seeing this the slow hemorrhaging of talent of the of 
real expertise at the State Department, even after Tillerson left, even under Pompeo. Um, another point that, that's been raised to me by current former diplomats is out of about 28 assistant secretary slots um, currently at the State Department, only one is filled by a current serving foreign service officer which is pretty unprecedented. Um, now, there's caveats there. There's some filling them in acting capacities. There's a former Foreign Service officer who's the Assistant Secretary of State for Africa. Pompeo has really empowered some career FSOs, but I think that point alone shows that um, there is still this hemorrhaging of talent from our diplomatic corps under the Trump administration that not even Pompeo, who vowed to restore swagger, who's very close personally with the president, can really seem to uh, get a handle on. Now, the line we hear from the Trump administration when they are presented with these criticisms of these vacancies at the State Department usually is to blame Democrats in Congress for not moving their nominations forward enough. Margaret, let me, I want to go back to you, given your experience on the Hill again. What is your reaction to those sorts of claims on the part of the Trump administration? You know, it, getting nominations through is a time-consuming process. Um, there is inevitably, you know, holds and conflict over certain nominees. This happened to the Obama administration as well, who had several positions, such as the office legal advisor that had a acting official for many years at various points of the administration without a, a nominee. But it does seem at a much higher volume under the Trump administration. W what do you make of those sort that as being a, an excuse? Is there some validity there, or is that uh, again a, a you know excuse that's being put forward to justify? really actions on the Trump administration's part. So having done the vetting on Foreign Relations Committee on the Democratic side for about five and a half years, including under the Obama administration, so I've got to sort of see two different administrations, I feel pretty confident in saying, you know, those statements out of the Trump administration, it's rhetoric. It's rhetoric to cover, <laughs> as in my view, for, you know, the real problem here is that the the people that are being nominated and they're going through the committee, so many of them have real serious problems. And that was just – it was so different uh, under the Trump administration, their nominees, compared to the Obama administration for me. The Obama administration had a pretty rigorous, like a really rigorous sort of vetting operation that they did because they knew if they sent people up who had problems, they were going to get hammered. Um, so they generally just didn't they ended up bouncing a lot of people in the internal administration's vetting. With the Trump administration, I, I can't speak to how many have been sort of bounced out of the process, but just a lot of people being sent up with serious problems. And just just to give a few examples here, one person that went through the committee reportedly had been under a restraining order for placing a shot-up paper gun range target in the office of her husband's doctor, which raised red flags and was problematic from a vetting perspective, from the committee's perspective. Another was, you know, screamed at committee staff as he waited, you know, for his State Department sort of handler person to escort him to his next meeting. That's a red flag. I mean, if you're coming in and screaming at committee staff at a period of time when you're trying to get confirmed, like, what are you going to do when you're out in some far-flung embassy you know, how are you going to treat employees? So huge red flag. That person never went forward. There were multiple people who had accusations of sexual harassment in their former workplaces. You know, the, those folks didn't, most of them didn't go forward. So from my perspective, we were, we were glad to move forward people who 
didn't raise huge red flags and had relevant experience. We did not like the idea of being criticized and accused of holding people back. So we were actually glad to move people through that we thought were qualified and fine. So I think the real the real problem here is is the the quality a lot of of a lot of these nominees. I think that's sort of you know the kind of the bottom line of what's going on. Yeah, and I mean, and there there are more nominees going through the process now. Um, I think it, from what I understand, it's a function of two things. Maybe uh, Margaret can chime in, um, who understands this much much better than me. But one is that you know the new Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Jim Risch, um, he's a lot quieter, a lot more behind the scenes, but I think because of that closer with with Trump and is a bit more of an effective behind the scenes operator with Pompeo, with Trump, with Bolton and his um and his people to, you know, you know, will pick and choose his battles, but can also work behind the scenes to help grease the wheels on some of the nominations that had been held up. Um another is uh I believe in April, Mitch McConnell passed a some rule in the Senate that uh, maybe you can help fill on. And uh, basically, it made it easier for uh, the Senate to pass nominees or to pass it through uh, nominees on the Senate floor. Um, And all of the reporting then was focused on judicial nominees because of this, you know, big dramatic battle in, you know, the federal judicial system that um, that's emerged under under Trump with Democrats blocking them and and Republicans trying to get them through. But one interesting side effect of that or bank shot was it also made it easier for State Department appointees to, to get through and get floor time for a final Senate vote. Yeah, no, that's right. And it basically shortened the time period, the waiting period um, before someone could could get their vote. But, you know, there's still there's still a problems for nominees. Um, and I'll just go into to one more here. And it's it's sort of like a live question. Uh, the nominee to be the person who's been nominated to be ambassador to Barbados and other important island nations in the Caribbean. Um, he, you know, in my sort of, again, looking sort of from the outside, um, looking at the things he's tweeted in the past, like this person is is going to have problems. And yet I'm, I'm also hearing that there's a push to get him a hearing. But just to give you a sense for the the problems I think, you know, he's going to encounter, you know, in his and we do look at tweets, we look at what people are tweeting, look at their Twitter feed, we look at all the public, we used to look at all their public statements um, when I was on the committee. Um, you know, you want to know what people have said publicly, you want to see, if their um, statements they've made are going to make it difficult for them to do the job that they've been nominated for. So the committee looks at all of that stuff. You know, this particular person in their Twitter feed, you know, had some sort of offensive retweets about Hillary Clinton. We saw that from a number of these nominees. What's, I think, more uh, significant, though, is, you know, just for example, this person had a retweet that says, you know, it's over for pervy lion Ted, quote, um, referring to Ted Cruz, uh, Who's lots on the of, Senate Foreign Relations Committee? <laughs> on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, lots of like weird, insulting tweets spreading conspiracy theories about Ted Cruz's wife. There's another of these retweets from February 2016 calling Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, also on the committee, quote one-term senators exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point unquote. Uh, there's another one from March of 2016. And this is sort of the most astounding one. It has a picture of Mitt Romney, and it says at the bottom, dumbass, unquote, unquote. And the text of the retweet says, quote, at Mitt Romney, Satan has hold of you. Surely you will go to hell for this one. God will not forgive what you did, unquote. Mitt Romney, 
also on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, you know, this is problematic. You know, putting this type of person up, I just don't see it. And, you know, when even if a person can get through the committee and their nominations is on the Senate floor, any member of the Senate can hold that nomination, which means Mitch McConnell then has to go through this formal process in order to get the vote. So there's lots of ways for these folks to get hung up. And when you've got a record like this, it's even harder. Wow. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me take the focus back because, we, of course, we have the Senate confirmed officials. But let's go back to some of those working level people that Robbie and Colin mentioned about these kind of more high profile resignations we're seeing happening in at least a few corners of the Foreign Service. We see, saw a number of these happen in different agencies kind of earlier on in the Trump administration, the prominent civil servants kind of resigning uh, over often in relation to the travel ban fairly early on. But here we have a number of people who really stuck it out, at least for the year or two of the Trump administration, then ultimately decided that they were not comfortable continuing in a role representing the United States, often in part in, in the case of Chuck Part and Bethany Milton, who I, who I will note in regard to uh, Ms. Elmich, she's a friend of mine, so sacred disclosure. You know, both of them kind of made the point that they have concerns about the Trump administration's policies, how to portray them to foreign audiences, um, how they can do so in good faith. And they both really emphasize something that's interesting in their pieces, which is this idea of the dissent channel cable, which is something that really is a kind of sacred third rail in the State Department. It's one of these uh, ideas about there being a culture of dissent at the State Department, an ability to voice your opinion and be heard, if not necessarily followed um, by senior officials. That's always been a, a release valve for people in this role who are want to be able to have their voice heard may not agree with what's happening, but gives them a, a mode of expression. But both Park and Milton ultimately came out and said, you know, in our case, the dissent channel cable wasn't sufficient. Park said, I'd signed a dissent channel cable regarding travel ban. Milton was involved in orchestrating that uh, dissent channel cable. That did go up. It was leaked to the public. We've, we've seen copies of it. And they just don't feel satisfied that that's sufficient at this point. Uh, Robbie and Colin, what is your sense about the role of the defense channel process and kind of the internal dialogue happening at the State Department? Why is this mechanism no longer sufficient? Is there something being changed here? Or is it really just um, a question of policy friction or the way this administration is handling the policy formation process in the department or perhaps in the broader government? Maybe Robbie could speak a little bit more to the process of the dissent channel, but um, but I mean, just look at you know our experience in, in international organizations. If you are associated with a policy that does not conform to the policy of the White House, then you are viewed as someone who's suspect, someone who you know is the subject, the target of retaliation. So I mean, I, I would imagine that dissent is not viewed as a positive sort of, you know, corrective to, you know, a policy gone wrong, it's seen as an act of disloyalty. So I, I think it's an administration where loyal, loyalty is more important than anything else. But maybe Robbie can talk about the dissent yeah. channel. I think that that's absolutely an important context. I mean, we, we heard this debate a lot in the public and from former officials back in early 2017, when Trump came, came in and sort of shook the Washington establishment. And I think since then, the dust had settled. Civil servants, be they in the State Department or elsewhere, had either made their peace and said, you know, my job here is to, you know, serve our democratically elected president and implement his policies 
um, and I will go do that now or say, you know what, I can't do that, therefore I will resign. Um, one, one interesting fresh angle on this is what one of these lower mid-level people, Chuck Park, wrote in his op-ed where he was complaining about the so-called complacent state that maybe you guys can elaborate on, but I thought it was an interesting way to think about how civil servants are dealing with uh, the Trump administration where, you know, there might be some policies that where they really have to hold their nose or it's difficult for them to to stomach implementing uh, those policies or trying to deal with the fallout of certain presidential remarks or statements or tweets that are seen as more uh, fiery and, and controversial. And Park mentioned that as, as one of the reasons that, that he was resigning. He didn't want to be part of the, you know, it was not the, a deep state opposing Trump at every turn. It was a complacent state sort of dragging its heels, but eventually uh, completing the policy. And he didn't want to be a part of that environment anymore. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't read the Park op-ed as saying people were dragging their heels. It was more okay. like he was uncomfortable with the idea that People can just sort of go to work every day and be implementing these policies or else defending things that are being said that they just have a moral core and moral disagreement with. Um, and he, that was the part where he just didn't feel like he could do that anymore. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of like a more subjective impression as a person who worked at the State Department for 10 years, very dedicated to the mission, I loved the time I spent there, you know. These two resignations for me, Chuck Park and Bethany Milton, are kind of like the saddest ones for me because, you know, it wasn't that they were sort of like pushed out by, you know, a, a Trump person or whatever. It was like they they just lost – they their moral cores were compromised and they just couldn't do it anymore. It was like – it's like the death of any pretext of American exceptionalism um, based on our values. Um, it's just like a like a, a devastating kind of thing, compounded by the fact that these two, you know, they've been at the State Department for Foreign Service officers for like 10, 11 years. This is like that middle group of Foreign Service officers who are the future senior career Foreign Service officers who will be career ambassadors this is the the cohort of people who are the future, and they are going to be filling these positions in Africa, in you know, tough, tough posts all around the world. And we're losing these people. We are losing the future of of the really talented career foreign service. So again, more of a subjective <laughs> rendering, but for me, that was kind of like the the saddest part uh, again of this month with these two resignations. Yeah, and I was. I mean, just in terms of the impact of that, I was recently speaking with a, a senior diplomat, and one thing that I that I often ask is, you know, why should a layperson or an average reader um, care whether you know a, one more mid level career diplomat is leaving? And and what they were saying to me is, look, this whole system of you know inexperienced political appointee ambassadors or sort of sidelining the State Department, we could get away with that after the end of the Cold War in this period of, you know, Pax Americana. But now if we truly are gearing up for this era of great power competition and China's rise um, and, you know, all these other actors that are challenging us, not only at home, but, you know, in the developing world, in Africa, uh, in Latin America, et cetera, we need to be on our game. Um, we need to have the best diplomats there on the ground um, trying to advance U.S. foreign policy. Um, and one anecdote I heard that was particularly pointed was that 
at an embassy, at an American embassy in East Africa, there were two U.S. economic cone diplomats. Um, and at the Chinese embassy a few blocks away, there were about 100. Um, and so why does this matter? I mean, in the same way that people are talking about, you know, we need a strong and robust military, we need boots on the ground, we need ships at sea, uh, we need to deploy these missiles here or there to counter China or to counter Russia. It's all part of the same conversation. It's just a part that's that's way more ignored. And the impacts might be more diffuse, but um, they will still be very serious if we have this hollowing out of the mid-level officers at the State Department, especially as we're trying to reposition ourselves for this new era. Well, let me let me take that into our kind of my kind of closing question for you all, which is that Secretary Pompeo, I think as Robbie mentioned earlier, really came into office in the wake of the fairly disastrous period of Secretary Tillerson and his management and the hiring freeze came in, removed the hiring freeze, swore to restore the swagger to the State Department, really was putting himself in forward as the person who's going to bring the State Department back into this leading role. And it stated so, more or less expressly, saying he wants to make it a place where people come to play a leading role in the country and the government uh, and in the global leadership role the United States plays. Yet, at the same time, and we've seen there's an interesting profile of him in New Yorker that really kind of played this out recently, that a big part of reason he's so effective, the big part of the reason he's stable in his job as autonomy is his relationship to the president and to the White House, and the fact that he really views himself as executing the president's policy, which is a little bit of a different position, perhaps, than prior secretaries have taken or viewed themselves in terms of their prior role may have been to develop the policy, inform it, draw from the expertise of the department as opposed to simply implementing a pre-existing set of ideas, perhaps the reform agenda, as uh, Mr. Stroll described it in some of the comments that you, that you all mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. In short, what does all of this tell us about the legacy of Secretary Pompeo uh, in this role and what impact it's going to have on the State Department moving forward? Are his promises to really restore and strengthen the State Department really his priority? Uh, are they falling short, or is that kind of a a little bit of a uh, lacquer he's putting on what is really a, a different sort of agenda, um, one that's driven by his relationship with the president of the White House. You know, my sense is that what I'm seeing is just a real loss of basic competence in the way that the U.S. conducts its foreign policy. And I'll give you an example. Um, recently, the U.S., which generally, you know, dominates and gets to decide to a certain degree who gets many of the biggest and most senior positions in the international system, uh, was in a competition with the Chinese for the Food and Agricultural Organization. Now, this isn't like China, Russia, North Korea. It's not a massive national security uh, crisis, but it just shows you like how well does the State Department function in terms of promoting candidates it wants for top jobs in the world. And the Chinese you know, campaigned in, in the way some people described it, campaigned in an American style, was out, you know, pushing its candidate, found a candidate who had deep background in sort of agricultural issues, um, you know, really lobbied other countries very hard, put a lot of work, you know, got in early in the race. And U.S. relatively late in the game backed a Georgian candidate, which didn't have, who didn't have much support among the membership. The French had another candidate who had 
probably a better chance of getting the job than the Georgians, but the Americans work to undermine the French candidate. And for some reason, they pushed and pushed and pushed for the Georgian. But they got into the race very late. They didn't do a good job of building a coalition of supporters for the candidates. And they got murdered. I mean, the the Chinese, I think it was the first time a candidate won in the first round. They had sort of overwhelming majority. And the American um, candidate had, uh, the Georgian candidate had fewer than a dozen. And it's just, you know, a lot of this was just a question of not doing the basic kind of spade work you do, building coalitions. There was an effort at the end of last year to try and uh, negotiate a deal with the UN membership to reduce U.S. dues to the organization because we feel like we're paying too much. Uh, Richard Holbrook carried out a massively ambitious campaign back, uh, you know, in 19, the late 1990s, uh, and convinced the, you know, the UN met membership to reduce American dues on the regular budget and peacekeeping. And he did it by, you know, leveraging the support of the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, getting you know, the president to weigh in, uh, massive efforts and capitals, demarches. Uh, he met with over 100 delegations. I mean, it was a serious, heavy lift. And, you know, we kind of, you know, I mean, a lot of the diplomats I talked to say the Americans, you know, they sent out some demarches, they made some calls, but they really didn't engage in a very serious effort and they didn't get what they wanted. I, I feel that I see this again and again and again, that we just do not engage in the sort of tough, slogging work that is required to achieve, you know, diplomatic, you know, gains um, on the international front. And and half the time, it seems we don't care. And and I think this is played, as we mentioned earlier, this is really played to the benefit of the Chinese. I mean, they're getting positions, they're expanding their influence in the international system. And the Americans' efforts to contain them is just not working, because they're seen as not, you know, particularly friendly to, to these institutions these days. Yeah, I think I think that's a really perfect example that's emblematic of the state of American diplomacy today, where if it's not one of the top three or four issues for the president, be it Iran, be it North Korea, be it Venezuela, you're going to get some very milk toasty weak attempts at, at diplomacy that would have been an easy win for us, you know, a few decades ago or later under both Democratic and Republican administrations that now are becoming really difficult, drawn-out battles and, you know, a real loss on the board for, for the United States that didn't have to be a loss. I mean, in terms of, of Secretary Pompeo's legacy, um, I think that will certainly be be part of it, um, sort of in the eyes of the history book. Um, I mean, he he's a really interesting character in, in the in the Trump show because he's he's a very political figure, probably in the same way that Hillary Clinton was when she was Secretary of State, when it was very clear that she had a, a you know, a political ambition, a, a future ahead. Um, and we're already seeing that right now with with buzz of, of Pompeo potentially running for Senate in Kansas. Uh, he keeps dismissing these rumors, and yet he keeps going back to Kansas to give speeches at for various organizations. So we'll see where that goes. Um, you know, I think that in the end, the the best thing that happened to Secretary Pompeo's legacy was coming right on the heels of of Tillerson, and so no matter what, he won't be as bad as Tillerson. Um, even if there's, you know, some management issues there, if he's always going to be compared to Rex Tillerson, um, he will always be viewed in a more positive light. Um, and I do think that you know he is probably one of the most effective secretaries of state um, in recent history at 
maintaining a very close and regular relationship with the president that past secretaries in the past um, have not done. You know, I've talked to current and former diplomats, some of whom are fans of the administration, some of whom are not. And a lot of them seem to agree that that Pompeo really does uh, respect the the American diplomatic corps, that he doesn't view it dis- with disdain, um, and he does empower foreign service officers in the way that Tillerson doesn't or Trump never would himself. And yet, how far can that go, even for someone like Pompeo, who's really close to Trump, if at the end of the day, Trump and his surrogates um, and the circle of people around him view diplomats with distrust and disdain? Well, unfortunately, we're, we're short on time today, so I think we have to leave our conversation off here. But Colm and Robbie, we're definitely going to keep reading your work in foreign policy to see what other issues may be on the horizon. And thank you both and Margaret for joining us today to talk about this set of issues. Thank you Thanks, so much. Scott. Hey, guys. Scott here with a quick addendum to our conversation with Colm and Robbie. A few days after we sat down, they released another story about some more developments in this story regarding the inspector general's report that we thought it was worth sharing with you. Earlier this week, Deputy Secretary of State John Sullivan and Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs David Hale held a town hall with staffers from the Bureau of International Organization Affairs to talk about the inspector general's report. They expressed regret for the allegations and for the conduct that reportedly happened and that's covered by the report and also indicated that such conduct was inappropriate. But notably, Mr. Sullivan made the assertion uh, on behalf of Secretary of State Pompeo that Mr. Moley, who's Assistant Secretary of State, couldn't be removed from office by the Secretary of State. Instead, because he is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, that decision has to come from the White House. David Hale uh, and other officials involved indicated that staffers should come to him with any concerns regarding professional ramifications they may have suffered because of the politically motivated conduct described in the inspector general's report and that indicated that he was responsible for developing the 60-day correction plan that responded to and implemented the inspector general's recommendations and that was taking that different perspectives into account in developing that plan, but weren't really clear on what the next step forward would be. Colm and Robbie quote one attendee of the meeting as describing the general vibe as a mix of bitter disappointment and depression. Going on further to note that the bottom line here is that there will be no action taken on Kevin Moley. Whether or not that's ultimately proven to be correct, one message that did come out from the meeting appears to be that the bottom line from the, within the State Department is that any decision regarding Assistant Secretary Moley doesn't lie ultimately with Secretary of State Pompeo. Instead, it lies with President Trump in the White House. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Be sure to visit our online store at www.thelawfarestore.com for all your lawfare swag needs. And if you haven't already, please take a second to share the podcast on Facebook or Twitter and give us a rating and review wherever you might have found us. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.